millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So we do what we always try to do here. Turn down the noise in the news cycle. Get to the information that really matters. Skip all the caterwauling and do our best to better discern the times we live in. Let's start with the economy today. We have covered over and over on this program, like most other places, the economy and what's going on. And we've had economists on. We have kind of a regular rotation of different economical folks. That's not a word, but it works. You know what I meant. The economy is a complicated thing right now because there's indicators on paper that are pretty good. Unemployment's low. Consumer output's pretty good. GDP's in decent shape comparatively. But then there's a lot of people that don't think the economy is good because inflation is still up. Let's go to the Washington Post real quick. Perfect example of what we're talking about here. Headline, prices rose 3.7% in September as Fed keeps up the inflation fight. Subheadline, officials still have more work to do to tame consumer prices, even though increases are down from last year's record highs. The key word there with these numbers is the increases. It's increasing less. It's increasing slower. Inflation's rate is slowing. Those are all great academical numbers. They're great on paper. They make the economists sound good. This is where the disconnect, though, is because prices are still going up and people feel that. Now, an economist can break that down to very minute detail and talk about things like, well, wage growth is keeping trace, so you're not really spending as much money as it is. It doesn't matter to the average person. And this is where you get into the political and cultural discussions of these things. If you're spending more money and things are more expensive, they're going to feel that. And that's going to affect how they feel about the economy. This is not some real deep, hard concept to understand. Yet, more and more people I see, especially the talking heads on TV, have a hard time communicating this. You cannot just wave away or talk down to or condescend or come up with some terminology that tries to explain to people that they're not spending more money when they are clearly going to the store and spending more money. Stuff's expensive. I just went to the store right before I recorded this, and I took the youngest youngin' with me, and when I checked out, she said, let me see the receipt. And she looked right at me, and she said, I had no idea toilet paper was so expensive. It wasn't super expensive. We actually got you know the discount brand, not the name brand. It was about $10 for a roll of six or whatever. But that was her reaction, and it was an honest reaction. But that's the thing with people now is when stuff's costing them a couple dollars more than before, they notice it. When their grocery bills go up, they notice it. This is why gas prices are so politically volatile, because gas is a lagging indicator. Whatever you're seeing at the gas pump doesn't have anything to do with what's on the news right now. It has to do with things that happened six months, nine months, 12 months ago. It's a lagging indicator, but people get really upset when gas goes up and down. These things matter. And if you're going to talk about politics and you're going to talk about culture and you're going to talk about political culture and how Americans view their politicians, part of being a politician, part of being a leader, part of being a 
policy person, part of understanding how to communicate about things like the economy is understanding that you're dealing with people, not numbers, not policies, not ideologies, people. People spend money. People know how much their milk and bread and things like that cost. They see that when they go to the meat counter at the grocery store, beef is extremely expensive. Take, for example, eggs. Eggs went through a massive swing in price. Now, it didn't really have anything to do with the economy per se. There was a big avian flu outbreak that just wiped out big chunks, and that changed the prices. And then it went up and down. But instead of understanding that, a lot of people tied that to the wider problems in the economy. Inflation had a little bit to do with it, but not as much as that avian flu did. These things have layers, and social media and news media do a really bad job of piercing through those layers and talking through them. So when you see headlines like this, and as we get into a political season, you know, they're just in charge. I'm not picking on them. If Trump was president, Biden's president, every president gets too much blame and too much credit for the economy when they don't have a lot to do with either. The Biden administration and their supporters are over and over and over again going to talk about, we don't understand why we're not getting credit for this great economy. Well, because it's great in some aspects and it's great on paper in some aspects, but as long as people are feeling it in their consumer goods, they're not going to agree that the economy is good. It's just that simple. Don't blame them. Change your messaging. Figure out how to talk around it. The same way, people that are going to be running on a GOP ticket are going to be talking about how bad Biden economics is. And there is criticism to the Biden administration. At the same time, they've got to communicate that too. You can't just yell inflation. You can't just yell spending because it's hypocritical. We spent trillions of dollars under Republican presidents. We spend trillions of dollars under Democratic presidents. We don't really take our fiscal house seriously at all. We do take it seriously when it affects us individually, whether it's something silly like the toilet paper run during COVID or something serious like inflation. The key to all this, knowing how to understand it, knowing how to talk about it, knowing how to deal with it, and knowing how to turn down the noise and get to what actually matters when it comes to economic things. News media and social media don't do a great job on a complex issue like the economy, but the economy affects every single person in America, and the global economy affects everybody in the world. We need to have a good understanding of how these things work and not just go off half-cocked on social media about it. So yeah, if you're spending more money at the grocery store, gas prices are up, things are expensive, a little hard to get by paycheck to paycheck, folks aren't going to think the economy's good. And they have every right to feel that way and to express that opinion. You want to argue the counter, you better meet people where they are. They're not happy. They're concerned. They have legitimate grievances with the economy right now. So whatever your political party, political ideology, or whatever office you're trying to run for, you better meet people there and then try to talk them to wherever you want them to get. Because if you just talk down to them, they're not going to like it. And it ain't fair. And you're going to come off sounding like a jerk. Because you're being one. More tell right after this. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm seeing something all over social media and news media. I heard it. I did some talking heading today for TV. I heard it on that. Um, we need to address it. There's a lot of people that is comparing the Hamas attack in Israel to 9-11. Uh, I've heard in this case today, I heard an official for the Israeli government say it right in front of me on a TV hit. I've seen people on social media make a comparison. I've seen lots of people talking about it in this way. I get the comparison. I understand it. Terrorist attack. Got it. 
I understand there's some applications there. I don't think it's a perfect comparison, though. Now, I know there's people on social media, especially, that'll be like, well, if you take the population adjusted, this is this would be like 40,000 Americans dying. I understand the point they're trying to make. It's horrible. It's awful what happened. I get it. We talked about this the first day we addressed this. We can have moral clarity while still understanding the complex realities of a situation. We have complete moral clarity that Hamas is a terrorist organization. They are terribly barbaric. They are well-financed by horrible people who live in Splendor and Qatar and other places who use Hamas and the war against the Jews and the Israeli people to make a whole lot of money for themselves. And they make that money in blood money off the backs of Hamas and by using things like the Palestinian people as both a human shield and as fodder to keep the fundraising going. Make no mistake when you see things like there's no bomb shelters in Gaza. Well, of course there's not because the civil authority in Gaza is Hamas. Hamas doesn't want there to be bomb shelters because they need dead Palestinians for their fundraising. And then that excuses them to go off and do more atrocities. They don't care about the Palestinian people. Dead Palestinians help their cause. They're that barbaric. We have complete moral clarity about Hamas. They need to be brought to justice. Any of them that doesn't surrender and wants to fight, I've got no problem, no compunction, and I sleep very well at night knowing that whoever's fighting them, whether it's the Israelis or anybody else, they need to be put down and killed. They've taken up arms as terrorists. That's what they get. If they surrender, give them a trial. If not, pink missed them. We have complete moral clarity and authority when it comes to Hamas, the terrorist organization. This ain't going to be real popular for a lot of people right now, but I 100% believe it, and I think it needs to be said. Here's a comparison with 9-11 in America and what's going on in Israel right now, the Hamas attack that slaughtered, at current count, at least 1,200 people, most of them civilians, many of them children. The problem with this debate is it always starts with the emotional appeal. Remember how you felt on 9-11. Okay, I get that. Completely understandable. Those of us that were alive and of age at the time, we remember exactly how we felt. I know exactly how I felt. I've never forgotten it. I was coming down the stairs. I'd been asleep. I got woken up. I was halfway down the stairs and the TV in the corner. I saw the second plane hit live, like most Americans, because they were already watching the coverage. And I was standing on the stairs. I'll never forget how I felt. I'll never forget that moment. Long as I live, I'll never forget it. Here's the thing. I also remember how I felt from then until now about everything that's happened since then. When people talk about, remember how you felt on 9-11, I also want you to remember that people don't ask you how you felt on 8-15. That's August the 15th, two years ago when Cabal fell in Afghanistan and the chaos and the disaster of our pullout from Afghanistan and the 20 years between that because there's a line between those two events how they both happen I remember how I felt on 9-11 I also remember how I felt on 8-15 I remember the 20 years between that I remember how I felt when I did deployments to the Middle East during the war on terror and Iraqi freedom and enduring freedom I remember all that just fine I know how it felt there's parts of that deal with how I feel both physically and emotionally just about every day. The appeal for justice, the righteous anger, is not only understandable, but it's good. It's helpful. It can drive you to a purpose. We need to get justice for these people. Hamas needs to be wiped off the face of the earth. I got no problem with that. I don't apologize for saying it. I hope Israel kills every single one of them that have taken up arms and done horrible deeds to innocent people. And I'll sleep very well about that statement. There's other things that bother me that don't. But since we're going to compare things to 9-11, there's more to it than just that. Fighting terrorism is a bloody game of whack-a-mole that nobody usually ever wins. We know this from history. We know this from the war on terror. We know from our own experience. That's why I bring up 815 and the fall of Cabal. How, did, how is that a win? We know what Israel reoccupying Gaza looks like, what it's going to entail, the problems that are ensue, and what's the probably end game of that's going to be, because we've seen it before. 
We know there's going to be a lot of bloodshed and a lot of violence all around. And we know Hamas is going to use every bit of it and everything now to further perpetuate and prepare for whatever the next attack they're going to do. No matter how many of them you kill, there's going to be more of them coming. See, the way you fight terrorism isn't just greasing the bad guys or drone strikes or leveling the places where they hide. It's the terrorist networks of money. That's where they really get their funding, through Qatar, through Iran, other places. The reason terrorism is so hard to fight is because these national actors, the geopolitical situation gets really complicated. It gets so complicated that you get paralysis. The reason the Middle East has always been a problem for America is we have so many conflicting interests that we can't get consistency and clarity that is required in good foreign policy. So every time somebody says this is their 9-11 and remember how you felt on 9-11, take them up on it. Do that. And then remember that we're, you know, 22 years, 23 years down the road now. Where are we at? Righteous anger will only get you so far. No matter how righteous the anger, the violence is only going to get you so far. You got to have a plan. You got to have a long-term plan. You got to know what to do the next step after you kick in those doors or bomb that building or shoot that bad guy. What comes next? That's not popular right now because everybody wants vengeance. It's understandable. In and of itself, there's nothing actually wrong with that. But you also have to keep in mind that this is not just a battle. It's a war. It is good and evil. But to stay on the good side, you have to have a plan to remain on the good side even while you're fighting the evil. My prayer is the Israelis know that. I'm sure they do. They probably need to tap down on the things about, you know, wiping out Gaza and we're dealing with animals. I understand how that sounds good on social media, but it'll lead to some practices that'll get you in trouble. Kill every Hamas militant you find. They deserve it. Bring the rest to justice if you can by whatever means necessary within the confines of laws and humanity. Remember, you're the good guys. And this can get messy in a hurry because righteous anger isn't going to change the geopolitical, the religious, the geography, the politics, the hatred that has drove this conflict really for millennia and for centuries and for the last few decades and made it extremely bloody in the last week. And I fear will make it extremely bloody for the long-term foreseeable future. We can have more clarity on what Hamas is and what needs to be done about it. But if you want me to remember 9-11 and how I felt on that day as your comp, I do. A lot of people died, billions of dollars wasted, countries left in ruins because we didn't have a good plan and good execution following through on that righteous anger from 9-11. Hope our Israeli friends do better. More hotel right after this. back to herd tell okay let's go up north our friends in canada have a little bit of a hot mess going on with their media we like to touch in with them every now and then we have them for a while time to do so joseph bouchard's young voices commentator does a lot of geopolitics actually spends a lot of time way down south in south america but he's in canada right now and from canada joseph how are you sir glad to have you on the program thank you great to be here uh, thanks for inviting me uh we have a lot of problems to cover but i'm, I'm sure we'll get into it yeah, it, it, let, let's just start kind of big picture for a second. For the American and international audience that aren't familiar with Canada, the media environment in Canada is very, very unique. You have the CBC, which technically kind of has a monopoly over just about everything. Um, people down south will know it for a few things, probably. Degrassi, uh, Heartland's big. I got kids that ride horses. They love that stick and show. So they, they understand the CBC, right? 
but there's a huge amount of American media overlap for obvious reasons because a huge proportion of the Canadian population lives within media distance, traditional media distance of the U.S. border. So they intake a ton. of This is a very unique media environment. Now you have Internet, social media, online media. Just explain it to folks that aren't there, that unique media environment before we get into the particulars so that we have a good baseline to work off of here. Sure. So funny enough, the CBC was created to combat the influence of American media uh, and private media in particular. Uh, even though if you turn on CBC on any night, about 50% or more of the coverage is about the U.S. <laughs> uh, I guess, you know, the Canadian audience just wants to hear about the U.S. We're just always fascinated by the U.S. Uh, but we've got our own problems, too. And and part of that is, is uh, CBC is a publicly funded media, but it's not publicly run. Although there's a lot of controversy around uh, how it's run, basically, uh, the conservatives and the NEP, the right wing and the left wing party, um, in opposition to the liberals, which are center left or center right, depending on who's in government, uh, they claim that the CBC has a liberal party bias. Um, and there's some truth to that. And that's what I cover uh, in this piece, uh, among other things. Um and it's it's simply meant to to combat American influence, but it does not do that great of a job. So there's people pushing for reform, and then there's private outlets that started to come up uh, in the last two decades or so, including CTV News, Global News, um, and they tend to do about as good a job as CBC at covering Canadian news. Uh, although some of them are center right, center left, um, depending on the on the outlet. Yeah. Here's the thing, your piece in International Policy Digest, we're going to link to the whole thing, make sure you read it. Before we get into the particulars of the piece, let's talk about who's pushing it. The Trudeau government, let's set that scene a little bit because that's an important piece here. Trudeau is probably in the worst place politically he's been in his time um, in power. He's got a lot going on. He's got a lot of inertia. He's just been in power for a long time and, you know, things start breaking down. He's kind of at that. He's had the divorce over the summer, that kind of ding ding. He's got some, you know, economic problems. They got media problems. He's got this, you know, domestic extremist situation that he's decided to pick a fight with India about. We'll talk about some other time, bizarrely enough. He's got a lot that's not going his way right now. And now he's doing this on top of it. So it's like, here's a guy that's struggling and he's going to hit a hot button issue that affects just about everybody. Is that an accurate portrayal of the political climate before we get into the details of the policy? I would say so. So the election is two years away still. Uh, Depends on when the prime minister calls the election, but usually it's about every uh, four years. Um, uh, And with that, you know, Trudeau's approval ratings in the 30s, some polls have in the 20s, which is absolutely horrendous. But that's about normal for a prime minister that's been in power for seven and a half years. Usually the rule is every 10 years, prime ministers go out and a new one comes in and it's usually an alternative between the conservative party and the liberal party. Uh, Last time I was a conservative with Stephen Harper. Uh, And you're right. uh, This is sort of a culmination of bad events, but uh, some analysts are pointing out that this is just two years away and there's a chance for Trudeau to win this back. But let's just say that this particular act isn't very popular. Um, And uh, just adds to his unpopularity. Um, yeah, I, I would say that this might be a bad time, but it could change. But for, you know, continuity, it could be that just like every every time, 10 years passes and we have a new prime minister. This particular bill, the Online News Act, it's Bill C-18 if you want to get technical about it. This is not a unique concept. Um, Australia tried this with similar stuff, you know, of course, another Commonwealth nation. And they gave up. They finally gave up on it this summer and said, "We can't do this. We can't enforce it. We're not going to try this anymore." The EU's trying to do this. There's rumbles in America about trying to do this. California has a bill that's really similar to this to do it. I like to point to China though and go, "Hey, the CCP with its complete dictatorship can't make this stuff work, but you're going to make it work." So the idea they've modified it now and they're talking about, well, the news out, the big news outlets and the online outlets, they're going to pay for the news and this sort of thing. The online outlets just shut down and go, no, we're not. We'll just quit carrying it. And round and around we're going. What's the particulars of this Canadian piece of legislation and how do they are they trying to slam this round peg in the square hole of trying to get media to coincide with online media when the online ain't going to cooperate no matter what you do? 
So there's two pieces to it. The first is lobbying. Uh, the telecom and news lobby in Canada are very powerful forces. Um, they've contributed millions to political candidates, mostly on the Liberal Party side. Um, and they've pushed for this kind of legislation forever uh, to regulate the media industry in Canada. And this is just one of those. Um, and the second piece, I would say, is sort of a, what I mentioned, which is limiting the impact of American news. But this is going to do the opposite <laughs> because it's actually going to restrict access to Canadian outlets because um, social media companies are blocking access to Canadian outlets on their platforms because they don't want to pay the fee. And the outlet isn't uh, the the law isn't even in in enforced yet. It's starting in December, I believe, December first. And even then, uh, Meta or Facebook and Google already blocked uh, Canadian news from their uh, platforms in Canada. Um, so it's actually making uh, Canadians rely on other sources of news, which mostly American news um, and other platforms. Yeah, it's weird. Um, Joseph Bouchard joining us. It's kind of weird to think of foreign news as being American news, but they're actually targeting American news here. There's, they're already got as part of this legislation. They want back payments in the tune of two hundred fifty some million dollars from Google and Meta to go to the CBC and Canadian media companies. You're talking about lobbying. Lobbying's a nice word for where's the money going to go, right? There's no version of this that isn't about an exchange of a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, why <laughs> shakedown is probably too harsh of a term, but it it really feels that way because it's like okay, here's the two biggest you know social media on the block. They got basically unlimited money. Let's go get some money from them. That's kind of how it feels. Oh yeah, well this is a way the liberals say it's a way to finance the Canadian uh, media industry, which is very underfunded, Canadian independent media specifically. But I don't think this is the right way to do it. Uh, you know, if you if you actually wanted to fund local media in Canada, you should come up with the way you did with CBC. You do public funding, um, and this this does the opposite. This restricts people's access to those outlets that they rely on, and usually people access their news through social media. Um, so this does the opposite of what it wants to do. Let's take an example from recent Canadian news. Something like Trudeau's personal scandals, Trudeau's political position. Let's go back even further. Something that's really touchy with a lot of layer nuances, something like the trucker protest that spilled over mm-hmm. the border. And when something like that is getting covered with this new legislation, though, look, those stories are all social media stories first, and then they kind of hit the media, and then the media uses social media to promote them. This is going to change that whole flow of information for most people. How are the people reacting to this legislation? Do they see it as an infringement? Do they see it as a handling of the public perception? How did the Canadian people see it? Because, again, the media is kind of already invested in this. so You can't really trust the Canadian media to be objective on this. What's the Canadian people think of it? So, sadly, I think there's a lack of reaction to it. Um, Most of the backlash from this comes from the right, uh, which is very sad to see. you know, some YouTubers like JJ McCullough have covered it um, and major outlets have kind of turned away from it. The only ones that have covered it are, are fringe outlets on the right. Um, and actually, when I pitched this piece to Canadian outlets, they told me it's not that you're a bad writer. It's that we don't agree with the editorial line, <laughs> which is really interesting if if they don't want to publish anything that goes against their editorial. And why would that be? Uh, why would they defend the CBC and the Canadian media establishment? Well, it's because they're part of it. Um, just simply put. Is there a culture in Canada, both the government, the media, and somewhat to the people? You touched on it towards the end of your piece. And again, we're going to link to the whole piece. will be in the subseg notes. 
is there still a little bit of a protectionism angle to this and they're applying it to media? Is that part of the problem here too, that it's just kind of an ingrained mindset more so than just a policy or free speech or media or free press? Is that part of the story here as well? I, I would say so. And I don't think with Canada, a lot of times uh, free speech isn't the most <laughs> important thing on their minds when they do legislation. It's more about, in this case, protecting from American influence. It's about protecting uh, Canadian outlets and Canadian consumers, uh, which is, in my in my view, as a free speech sort of absolutist, uh, pretty pretty paternalistic. <laughs> um, and there's been a lot of attempts by the Canadian government to regulate online media, um, and in the past, it's been pushed back pushed back on. But it seems like in this climate. Um, with uh, the U.S. being used as a punch, punching bag in, in media and the public regularly, um, that this sort of thing flies due to its justification, even though it shouldn't. Um, so I, I would say so. I would say that uh, freedom of expression isn't necessarily what's fueling this, but rather a, an attempt to protect Canadian markets. All right. Where are we going with this in the future? Um, it's you know obviously proposed you know, Canadian Parliament's kind of its own own world that you got to kind of understand to get through this. But give folks a couple steps to kind of watch for in the headlines of where this is going to go in the future. Like you said, there's the overall political environment. We're nowhere near an actual election unless Trudeau calls one. But it's very much part of the political process. Give me the political process, the media process, and what folks can watch for as this goes forward. Do, do you mean uh, for this bill particularly or for Canadian yeah. politics? The, the bill particularly. For this bill, um, we got to watch out till December because that's when the bill is supposed to enter into law. Um, so there's already been, as I said, pushback from social media companies, and it hasn't even come into uh, been enforced yet. Um, so I, I would say wait until uh, December and hope that there's more backlash or participate in it if you can uh, to make sure that the government reverses this piece of legislation. And after December, if it doesn't, just watch for uh, more social media companies like Twitter or X um, block, doing the same blocking Canadian media from their platforms or or if they will comply with the law, which seems unlikely at this point. Um, Google is the only one that said that they would. But I, with the retroactive payments on top of the additional payments, which could reach hundreds of millions of dollars a year, I don't see how this would be worth it for them. No, I don't either. Joseph of Shard joining us. Um, one last way to kind of put a bow tie on this with the social media stuff. Look, the entire idea of social media is it's a global thing. Of course, you know, Google and Meta are American companies. Twitter's an American company. You know, there's other companies otherwise, but those are the big ones. Where are we going to be going with this? Because even if Canada does this, the, the social media companies aren't going to comply. We've seen, like we started with, Australia's already kind of abandoned this. America's fighting it. The EU's fighting it, but they have they already have some restrictions and people are getting around it. Where do you see this overall conversation going? Because Canada seems like just the latest in a line of countries dealing with this. Globally, where do you see this going? Because it seems like the governments are always going to be chasing the technology here. Yeah, well, there's a big movement behind it, sadly, of people who want to not only break up big tech, which I understand, but also regulating speech on social media. For example, wanting to uh, put the NDP's proposes put it putting uh, the NDP's a new Dem New Democrats party. It's the the center left or, or left wing or social democratic party in Canada, basically to give accountability to social media companies for what their users post, which opens up an entire Pandora's box of, uh, well, you got to now crack down on users because you can't have a lawsuit on your hands or have, God forbid, your site be taken down by the government because of these anti-extremist laws. Um, and it seems like that's where Canada's headed. There's a lot of support for um hate speech laws, especially on, on online media, with the rise of influ and influence of, of um, far right and far left uh, content creators on TikTok and on YouTube and, and Facebook and all this. But to me, that's not really the solution. I think 
educating people what the consequences of those uh, people's uh, rhetoric are would be the the best place to start. I don't think restricting people's access to news or the internet uh, is is worthwhile. First of all, it's paternalistic. Like, who is the government to choose which users and which ones aren't promoting what the government says is hate speech? And it's really creating a slippery slope of curtailing uh, freedom of expression again online. Yeah. Judge Bouchard, appreciate the conversation. Again, we're going to link to the entire piece in International Policy Review. It'll be on the Substack notes. Make sure you read the entire piece. Read through that. My friend, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on the program again. Thank you. That's nice of you. So you can follow me at Wonk on Twitter. Uh, and you can follow my pieces there on LinkedIn as well. I usually post my pieces every week. Uh, thank you, everyone, for reading and looking forward to engaging. Yep, we'll get you back. Might have to get you back on this India and Canada thing because that is a very ugly story that's – Kind of leaving that one alone for a little while because I don't think we got we got mm. a real good picture on what's going on there. But keep an eye on that one in the headlines too. Just for sure. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll have to come back for that. Uh, actually, this morning I saw they expelled both diplomats. Uh, uh, it's ugly. Yeah, yep. not good. Get more ugly. Not good at all. All right, we'll see you soon, my friend. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. There you go. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. We haven't had him in a while. It's time to get him back. He got a book out, too. Going to talk about in that just a second. He teaches history up around the Raleigh area. He's been a friend of the program for a long time, going all the way back to the radio days. Eric Medlin, how are you, sir? Doing great. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm excited to have you because this is going to be a fun little topic because I like niche history. And I like niche history that turns into kind of a dowel rod to get you into other pieces of history. See what I did there? We're talking furniture. Um, the book's called Sawdust in Your Pockets. It's a history of the North Carolina furniture industry. You've written regional histories before. Here's what I find interesting about the the furniture business in the North Carolina area, and I've been around North Carolina on and off for 20 years. Southwest Virginia, North Carolina, the low country did a lot of this. Of course, Pennsylvania, Amish country, things like this. But the industrialization of the furniture industry from the antebellum period up through the 50s and 60s and 70s, and then you get the drop-off in the 80s, it really does kind of flow through a lot of the industrial history of America as we transition from a mostly industrial society to what we have now, which is a service-based economy. That's an interesting thread to pull. So it's a lot more, like you said on the cover, it's a lot more than just sitting on chairs we're talking here. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it's this real that it, it goes back to you know your artisans in the 17th century and into the 18th century. It discusses how how factories came out of that early on with mechanized saws and and really basic machines being put to the artisan work. And then it goes through the book uh, traces developments through the 19th century, through the late 19th century, through this period of industrialization and these these concepts that have been traced in a lot of different other places, but not really applied to North Carolina before. One example that I really like to emphasize is this, this idea of the industrial boomtown. We've had a lot of writing over the past century over industrial boomtowns like Manchester or like Detroit with the automotive industry. And North Carolina has its industrial boomtown, which is High Point. You have those developments. And then the furniture industry, as you said, is affected by that, that, that uh, offshoring movement of the 1980s and 90s. And then the, the more recent onshoring movement of the 20-teens and 2020s. It really is the story of American industry through this one important but mostly neglected uh, industry in, in North Carolina. Yeah, you wrapped up three industries in the blurb for the book, tobacco, textiles, and furnitures. Folks probably understand the textile industry because they see that one in Walmart all the time now. I mean, you still have some like, you know, Gildan and Softy and a few others and then the niche ones. But most of your stuff's made in China, made in Taiwan, made in Vietnam. So the textile ones folks know. But those industries all went together. You know, one of the pre-Civil War largest textiles mills right down the road from my North Carolina house down here in Rock, the Rockfish uh, factory, they called it back then. Massive facility for textile for the day. Tobacco, everybody kind of knows that one, the Winston-Salem area. The furniture one in the High Point area, also somewhat on the coast, the Wilmington area, that sort of thing, because they had to ship this stuff. It's also a map of things like migration patterns after the Civil War as people came out of the South and out of Reconstruction looking for work. They came to the city areas. That threads in there, the economic thread of the country, you know, the industrialization of the South, which had lagged the North before the Civil War. And then you go all the way through modern history, the two world wars, the baby boom generation, civil rights. Jim Crow in the 30s through the civil rights movement and how those workers started coming in. There's a lot of history covered here, isn't there? Oh yes, oh yes. It, it's it's almost it's almost criminal that there really hasn't been this book before. This book, the textile version of this book, was written in the 1930s. The tobacco versions were written in 50s, 60s, and 80s. But there hadn't really been a history of the North Carolina furniture industry for a number of very strange and inexplicable reasons. The furniture industry employed almost a million people. It contributed to a senator, a lieutenant governor. All of these towns, your Thomasvilles, your Hickories, your Lexingtons, your, your High Points. And then you do have all of these different uh, forces coming into play. Particularly, you talked about the New South. There was a, we, we talk a lot when we talk about New South history, about these boosters, people like Daniel Tompkins and Henry Grady. High Point and Furniture had a booster. There is a furniture version of all of these developments, but furniture develops a little differently. I use the term in my book, um, you, you know, I, I talk about militant unionism as a reason for textiles attractiveness to historians and its real focus in the history, in the, the, the field of history and the field of study. And furniture doesn't have as many of the militant unionists. Furniture doesn't have as many of the of the great barons, the the governors, the the decades long uh, dynasties that textiles have. So, furniture is important, but I can kind of see why historians neglected it to this point. Yeah, Eric Medlin joining us. The book's called Sawdust in Your Pockets: A History of North Carolina Furniture Industry. I was struck a little bit, kind of looking through some of this. You just talked about military unionism. People have, you know, where I'm from, the coal mines, that's been romanticized and mythologized to a high. But one thing that was common here, it wasn't quite the slightly better than, you know, indentured servitude, slavery stuff that the coal camps were. 
these furniture fact they really were company towns. The whole town was around the factory and the company. That part of it really was true. And you see that in other industries as well. You know, you can even go to Heinz Food when it started up. It had a company town at one point where everybody showered because they were the only ones that had running water, that sort of thing. The company town mindset, though, is a big, big part of this, not just for the furniture industry, but the development and the rise and the fall of some of these towns as well. Yeah, and I think one thing about the furniture industry that, that I, I want to uh, I want to come across through this book is that the furniture industry prides itself on not being the textile industry. So the textile industry, and I'm not sure about the coal mining industry, but I'm sure that this happened at least sometimes with the coal mining industry. They like to pay people in script. They liked to pay people in a little piece of paper that you could use at the company store to buy extremely inflated goods and go in debt for the rest of your life. These pamphlets on the furniture industry say, we pay our people money. And they're very proud of that. And that holds them, that holds uh, union organizers back a little bit. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a general strike in High Point in the 1930s. furniture workers and the furniture workers the the market's coming up and they go back to work and they kind of abandon the strike because they're actually being paid a little more they're being treated a little better and that holds workers militant unionism things like that back in the furniture industry a little bit and i think that that's one reason why historians have kind of overlooked it so But to me, as a historian, I love complicated stories. And that's what I want to jump on. And that's one reason why I wrote the book. Yeah, even Hershey had a good riot. So, you know, the Hershey factory, if you go back in time enough. Talk about the economic part of this, too, because this is where this story has some application to today. In a lot of ways, America has been coasting on the post-World War II, um, not just the mythology and the cultural aspects of and Of course, the baby boomers are starting to get to that age where they're going to start passing off. We've almost lost all of the greatest generation now. But economically, we rode that way for a long time. A lot of our economic stuff now is that America's trying to figure out what it is now that the World War II wave and then the 80s bump has gone away. Okay, what do we do now? That mid-century rise and fall of the furniture industry, in some ways it was ahead of the rest of the economy. It globalized faster than the rest of the economy. Um, it diversified. But it's also had a little bit of a comeback as a niche online. Hey, people can, the, it's almost gone back to what you mentioned in the beginning. The artisans have kind of had a comeback here now too. In some ways, this has been a leading indicator to some of the other stuff that's been going on. I think one really great way of textile and tobacco. Tobacco industry obviously falters, not just because of globalization, but because of health issues. The textile industry was and had further to fall. And the textile industry did not find its own way. It was towards that niche. Uh, talking with some furniture executives, I learned that the companies discovered at one point that, that, that custom-made furniture does not fit easily in shipping containers. And this was- I'm a transportation guy, I'll confirm that one for you. You, you want it to all be uniform. <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly right. I had to learn about shipping containers when I wrote this book. And that was this revelation. And that leads to the furniture industry kind of being able to stay viable in a way that textiles and tobacco don't as much. And it it shows a way forward for manufacturing in this country, even before the labor concerns of uh, uh, since 2020. 
Yeah, Eric Medlin, the book's called Sawdust in Your Pocket. There's also a political aspect to this. You talked about the boosters. That's a nice way of saying, you know, <laughs> influence across the spectrum, right? Yeah. There's This changes the politics places because, look, we're seeing it right now with big tech. Big tech has a lot of influence. A lot of time and energy on Capitol Hill is spent on big technology. Same way back in the day. You know, whatever the industry that was the hottest, that's who has the political power. And as it waned, the political centers of power moved with it because now all of a sudden, well, high point's not that big a deal. Now, you know, Greensboro is more the high deal because it's the more, you know, economically diverse area and it moves up the road a little bit. Things like this. Talk about that aspect for it, because when an industry has money, it has influence and power. When the people leave and the towns start dying off, you lose political power. That's part of the story, too. Yeah, and and that happens too. That's one of the the aspects of the the story of the furniture industry is this constant movement, usually towards cheap labor. Uh, furniture industry moves from places like Boston, New York, to Jamestown, a little further west. Jamestown, New York, Grand Rapids, always looking for that cheaper labor. And then starting in the 60s and 70s, it kind of moves even more west, even within the state of North Carolina, it moves from the high point Lexington, Thomasville, more towards your Hickories, your Morgantons, and even places like Robbinsville, way up in the mountains. And when it moves, the the interest and the, the power and the strength and the influence move with it. And also, some places are forced to adapt. And what you get in High Point, a lot of the, the factories move, but they are replaced by the furniture market. This service-based economic approach that still takes advantage of all these connections to furniture factories and, and furniture designers and other furniture companies and finds a way forward. So these towns, they're forced to either find something else to sustain them or find some other way to make money with furniture. And I think Hickory and High Point, Morganton to a lesser degree, sure, while not just being able to crank out cheap wooden furniture for, for text. Yeah, Eric Medlin, join us. Okay, the gorilla in the room. Compare the North Carolina, and, and it wasn't just North Carolina. There's some places out west, too, but the North Carolina, Thomasville, High Point, that area. Compare it to Ikea, because that's going to be the comp for a lot of people, right? I, like, I, I was in Denver for a wedding, and my family's like, oh, let's go to Ikea. I'm like, Rocky Mountains, let's go to the mountains, let's go to Red Rock. Like, no, let's go to Ikea. Like, We lived in Europe, guys. We don't need to go to Ikea. There's something about Ikea. There's something about putting together your press board furniture but it is the contrast because that's the new way, right? Yeah, and that that comes in the 1950s, 1960s. You have all these these Scandinavian uh, furniture companies and these designers with kind of a minimalist aesthetic and that that build your own approach. And it's in in North Carolina, the IKEA in Charlotte is a tourist attraction, and there are a lot of of furniture manufacturers who are kind of threatened by that but it but it's its own it's its own approach i don't like putting together furniture myself i'm not a big fan of of uh trying to figure out where this this shelf goes and where this this board goes so i'm not the biggest ikea person sometimes you want if you want something more custom if you want something colorful to have some sort of design and you want it to be to be local to put money in the pockets in many instances with the manufacturers who are still here, places like High Point, Thomasville, Hickory, you're putting money back into the local economy instead of in some giant corporation over in Sweden. Yeah. Darn those Swedes. They ruined everything. <laughs> Eric Medlin joining us. Sawdust in your pockets. We're going to have the link in the Substack notes, hertel.substack.com. It's ready for pre-order right now. It comes out in a week or so. The easy answer to put a bow on this is people go, whether it was this, you know, a lot of my family was in the steel industry in the 50s, 60s, 70s, watch that go away. You know, it's easy to just say, well, globalization and whatever, and that kill. 
the answer is actually far more complicated than just globalization, though. It's like, well, yeah, the steel industry died because of globalization, but they also didn't upgrade anything when the rest of the world upgraded and they got caught in the 70s. The furniture industry is just one of those. We already talked about how it was kind of ahead of the times and its rise and fall and then the, the internetization of it, whatever that term you want to use. But what is it that actually did it? Because just saying it globalized, that's a little simplified, right? Yeah, I, I think that it, it's it's that story is so basic and has been told a million times and, and the dates don't add up. Uh, furniture manufacturing in North Carolina was huge in the 1980s and even in the early 1990s. It takes several years to for globalization to start sending jobs overseas, which was one of the things that people really bothered by. Now, the the real issue to me with the North Carolina furniture industry was the the consolidation, the entrance of massive companies from other states and other areas, where the title of my book comes from, a, a, uh, a large company CEO comes to North Carolina and talks to this small company owner and is trying to figure out what it what it means to to build a successful furniture factory. And the local guy says, you'll never know unless you have a a pocket full of sawdust and a mouthful of tobacco juice. And that quote really shows the, the, to me, the argument for why the industry began to falter because all of these multinational companies come in, they buy up a lot of the local factories and then it's just numbers on a balance sheet. There's a economic downturn. And while during the 1930s, Factory owners might try to keep people, might try to keep the factories open. The slightest recession in the 80s and 90s, if it's a company like like Magnavox or Champion Paper, they'll just shut it down. They'll just lay everybody off and send them all home. And that is that is where the real malaise in the furniture industry comes from, that 70s, 80s entrance of those big companies. And then globalization just wiped them all. Wipe, wipe the remainder off in the 90s and all. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of the last push more than the driving factor. Eric Medlin, all right, bringing this down to the real level for folks. When they go to a furniture store, which I hate going to, they're right up there with cell phone stores and buying a car now. It's just hassle. I don't want to talk. I dread the person walking up to me when I walk in. I just hate going to furniture stores. Biggest one in America is actually not Ikea, obviously, because they're kind of specialized in big city. It's actually Ashley Home Stores. But then you look at the list of the biggest furniture retail stores, Williams-Sonoma, that's more high-end. Then you got Mattress Firm, which is mattresses. Rooms to Go is growing. They actually, you talk about North Carolina, they have an Ikea-sized distribution and store center up and done, I've been to. Berkshire Hathaway's the consolidation, you know. But then on that list, you get things like Big Lots, which is just reselling the not perfect or the overstock mm -hmm. stuff. That's kind of a microcosm, though, of where this industry is now compared to where it was in its heyday that you write about, right? It's like, yeah, you got your Ashleys, yeah, you got your Ikeas, but a lot of folks still go to Home Goods or Big Lots or somewhere like that when they just want to get a piece of furniture now. They have options, and options is not a bad thing in and of itself. Yeah, it's not going to be employing a million people employing, you know, 5,000 person plants that make up large sections of, of downtowns anymore. It's going to be that mid to high level um, customer who's, who's looking for something more, um, more, uh, more custom, custom designs, custom colors, things like that, things that aren't always possible to get at an Ashley or at an Ikea or places like that. And also all of the design, the, the, the items that you're talking about, your big lots, your Ashley and all that, the, the designs have to come from somewhere. And the designs in many cases are coming from places like High Point. The, they're filtering down from high level design firms in High Point or in Hickory through the furniture market. And then eventually they're getting to your Ashley's, your big lots, and even your Walmart's. So it's this higher level design, sales, and, and more custom manufacturing that I think the, the furniture industry has discovered we can do this, we can survive, 
we can thrive in this space. Maybe we're not going to be as big as we were before. Maybe not. we're not going to dominate a third of the state, but we can still be successful and our, our companies can still survive. Yeah, Eric Medlin, it goes to that quote you just had, that great quote about having sawdust in your pocket and I'm chewing, right? Well, now it's you got to be able to run a computer because this is all done on computers. And if you can't run a computer, you're not going to work in a factory. You're not going to work in shipping. You're not going to load trucks. That's all part of the story now. So while the quote's great about you got to have the sawdust in your pocket, no, most of this now is computer stuff. And that's the change in the labor force that really matters here, isn't it? Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, th that quote was really appropriate for 1968, 1970s, obviously, there have been so many changes and so many of those, the same kinds of people who are saying that um, now have, I mean, I've met several of them and they now have, you know, large high tech operations and large scale processes. But it's, it's really a lot of the manufacturing is still done in a very, very basic way. I went to one of the more state of the art furniture factories in, in Thomasville and they were still people with sewing machines, people with with scissors, with big scissors. And, and there were computers, but there was also a real need for human labor. And I think that that's another thing that helps the furniture industry stand out. The, the, the industry is going to continue to require labor for the foreseeable future. And that is going to, at a certain point, keep it from you know, maybe a, a an, an automobile factory or even like a textile mill. And it's one of those niches, too, where people are going to pay extra to have it handmade as opposed to, you know, not denigrating it. It just is what it is, the Ikea stuff or the or the Ashley stuff where it's kind of mass produced. People are going to the people that can afford it are going to pay a premium to get that hand done stuff. So there'll always be that niche as well. Book's called Sawdust in Your Pocket. I'm looking forward to it. I love history like this. Eric Medlin, our good friend, he also writes on Medium, sometimes writes for Ordinary-Times.com. Hint, hint, time to start sending some stuff in, my friend. Wow. Let folks know where they can keep up with you. Let them know where to get the book. We're going to do the Amazon link to it, but tell folks where they can keep up with you until we get you back on the show again. Yeah, definitely. Follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MedlinWrites. Buy my book from Amazon, also available on the University of Georgia Press website. This is a real book. It's the University of Georgia Press. He's a real historian. He's a real good friend. We love having him. Eric Medlin, thank you so much for the time, sir. Thanks, Andrew. Nice talking to you. Yes, sir. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And that'll do it for this edition of Heard Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you 
Herd Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Herd Tell. We also have Herd Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of things like that, and also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. We got over 600 episodes of Herd Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you anything more than a click herdtell.substack.com we sure appreciate it and follow us on social media herdtell show on the twitter for for the fires my personal twitter handle no we're not going to call it x but if you could share us and let folks know that our programs we're checking out we sure would appreciate it so wherever you are across the street or around the world we hope you're well we hope you are well fed we'll talk to you real soon for the next herdtell All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.